the Middle Eastern heat in Jerusalem, uh, there was a, a band of Christian soldiers. It was the first crusade that gathered outside the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this time was occupied by Muslim armies and Muslim people. And this group of, this army of soldiers were sent by the Pope from Europe under the idea that they will do God's will and they will earn salvation by taking back the Holy Land. As they were looking, as they were assessing their challenges of breaching the city walls, it was a very fortified city. It was a very difficult um, project to undertake. And they were preparing for a long siege to block off the city and resources and help starve it out. But then they found out that another reinforcing Muslim army was coming and they had to attack soon. So these Christian soldiers, I, I cannot make a judgment on the condition of their souls, but under their sense of God's mission, they walked around the city barefoot singing hymns. And on July 15th, they attacked. Even though the odds were stacked against them, even though it was a fierce defense, everything changed when one single knight was able to climb the wall and fight off one of the soldiers at that moment, point in the wall and was able to create a breach. And then the army was able to take the city. The point of the story is not to endorse the, uh, the mission of the Crusades. That's actually one of the darkest points in church history. But to illustrate a very important point in war against physical enemies and in our war against sin. And that is, when it comes to war, it's all about the specifics. And when it comes to battling sin, it's all about the specific points of tension, the specific challenges that we face as Christians. It is not enough to think that you have conquered an enemy by having generally prepared for the attack, by having general idea that you have a lot of resources and everything is going to be okay. As Christians, I think we often get this kind of misconception that as long as I believe in Jesus, uh, as long as I'm trusting God, as long as I'm doing the general Christian thing, I should be able to overcome my challenges. And when I keep stumbling on a certain sin, I just cap it off with a general statement like, oh, I just need to repent. Oh, I just need to be more humble. Oh, I just need to love Jesus more, right? But what we've been looking at in, in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians is that after giving some general challenges to how they view the Christian life, Paul then turns to specifics. He turns to specifics and specific sins and challenges and failures that were happening in this church. And, and when we're going through these specifics these last few weeks, some of these texts, they make us uncomfortable in the things that they talk about. They talk about uncomfortable things, things that we don't usually talk about at the dinner table, table right? But as we look at these specific texts and we, we, we look at how, does, how Paul does war specifically with sin, we really... I think, have some very powerful conversations. We really start to see the power of the gospel as it has the ability to conquer uh, our struggles in the specifics. That's one of the things that Paul is teaching us. Some of these passages we are reading, they may be shocking. Uh, they may be uncomfortable. But as we let this truth sink in, 
we see that there is great riches. There's great power in the truth of God. We are not just generally slapping a Jesus sticker on our struggles here today. We don't just come here and say, oh yeah, you know, life is hard, but just believe and sing a really good song, get your emotions up and go back to life. No, when we look at the word of God, the word of God, it, it attacks the specific struggles that we deal with. So let's read our passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but, not, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined with a prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined with the Lord is one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have, who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. So in this text, as we see, Paul is once again returning to the challenges in this church, and there's a particular challenge here of sexual sin. And as he looks at the specific issue, he's also giving us a broader understanding of the, the, the power and the danger of sexual sin and sexual brokenness. As he's doing this, Paul wants us to see this. He wants us to see that God has purchased our whole self, your whole self, your body and your soul for the purpose of glorifying him, serving him, and following him, now and in the future. And sexual sin, as this passage highlights, as we will see, Sexual sin is a big problem in the culture around us. It's also a big problem in the church. And Paul wants to highlight the fact that sexual sin is a type of sin that has particular power to destroy, to destroy people, to destroy bodies, and to destroy souls. So let's, let's look at what, how, how Paul's argument weaves through, uh, through the text as we look at verses 12. And we see, first of all, that the Corinthians had a twisted view of freedom. How did they get to such a crazy idea that Christians can go and partake in such terrible activities as hiring a prostitute? How, do, how could Christians, again, we come to a text where we ask the question, how is it possible for Christians to say that this is okay, right? And again, I think as we did in chapter 5, when we ask that question, it, we should feel the echo of that question in ourselves because we realize though uh, this is a sin that we don't tolerate, there are many other sins that Christians do tolerate. How do we get there? How do we get to a place where we tolerate sin? First of all, it's, it's this twisted view of freedom. Notice what, what Paul says. So what Paul's doing, he is quoting a, a, a popular saying that, that, 
this popular saying that the Corinthians are throwing around, and they're using this saying as a justification, as a reason why they are allowed to do whatever they want. And this saying is, everything is permissible for me. He quotes it in verse 12 twice, right? Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. We don't really know where they got this phrase, but most likely, it could have even been from Paul himself, right? But most likely what this phrase is getting at is, as Christians, we are saved by grace. We are not saved by works. And that means that we do not earn our salvation by our works. That means that we don't live our lives um, submitting to some sort of religious rules that make us good, right? And so the Corinthians were trying to apply this twisted view of grace where grace means I'm saved by what God has done. It means that I can do whatever I want. Obviously, they're taking this idea of the fact that we're not justified by our works, and they're pushing it to its extreme. And, and, and what Paul's doing here is he's saying, guys, you have a totally twisted view of freedom, of Christian freedom. Christian freedom is not defined by what you're allowed to do. Christian freedom is defined by what you are seeking to do, what you are seeking to accomplish, your goal. It's not defined by your limits. It's defined by your direction. Right? That's what Paul's trying to, trying to show us. He says, don't just ask, what am I allowed to do? You know, that's one of the things that, uh, again, really applicable to us as many of us are in the Russian Christian community. Um, our generation is going through changes as we kind of ask questions about what kind of traditions, what kind of values, what kind of practices do we build as a church? What is acceptable? What is not acceptable? And in that process, we're changing our mind about some things, right? We look back at the past and we think, well, this was always forbidden, but why? And so we examine it and we think, hmm, that was more of a human tradition and a rule. And biblically, we can't justify that. So we have to find a, a biblical alternative. We have to find a way to move forward that is not imposing on people artificial rules. Now, this process, we are in this process, right? We've been talking about a number of issues in our church. This process is a delicate process. It's not that simple. Some people oversimplify it. Oh, no more rules. We can do whatever we want. No, Paul's saying, wait, hold up, hold up. What is your goal? Freedom is not just freedom, do whatever you want. Freedom is, wait, okay, what is my purpose? What is my goal? What is a free person? Our culture offers this idea of freedom. Freedom is absence of all restraint. But that is a totally false definition of freedom. That's maybe what we think of when we think of freedom. Recently on a podcast, um, uh, Jordan Peterson was talking to Joe Rogan, and he was like, oh, I love to play this game with my students about freedom. You know, this idea of freedom. What is freedom? He says, we play this game in our class. He says, okay, this game, uh, there's no rules. Uh, you do whatever you want. You go first. And the guy interviewing him is like, what? Like, sitting, staring. He's like, it's a game. There's no rules. You do whatever you want. You go first. He's like, I'm uh, not really getting what you're saying. He's like, this is exactly my point. Most people, when there are no rules, when I tell them this is a game with no rules, they do exactly what you did. They just sit there. They don't do anything. And that highlights this point that true freedom is not the absence of all rules. True freedom is the, the presence of the correct rules with the correct focus. If you want the freedom to play music beautifully, you have to limit yourself. You have to focus. You have to practice for years, right? That's in all of life. And what Paul is saying here is saying, look, True freedom is not defined by absence of rules. He says, yeah, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. 
Beneficial, he says, he means like building up, edifying to others. Yeah, everything is permissible maybe in some sense, but I will not be mastered by anything, meaning I'm free from unhealthy dependence. I'm not depending on something. I'm not becoming a slave to something. How did the Corinthians get this idea, right? We may ask. Well, it goes down to their view of the self, right? They had this over-spiritualized view. We talked about it a couple of chapters earlier where I'm, my spirit is saved. All that matters is I'm saved by grace. All that matters is my spiritual status. My physical status, my body, my actions, not as important, you know? It's part of this world, and this world will kind of burn and kind of pass away. What matters is if I believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus. And so they took that idea to the extreme where they're like, well, as long as I believe in Jesus, I could do whatever I want with my body, I could follow all my body desires, I can do whatever I want, and it led to sexual sin and sexual brokenness in this church. This false view of the self where the spiritual matters, the physical doesn't really matter. You know, we kind of, again, that's an idea that we've, we've maybe seen in, in the church growing up where, you know, as long as I am uh, doing spiritual things, as long as I'm... Um, in a ministry, participating in the church, reading my Bible. That's the main thing. You know, the fact that I, um, you know, do some, some shady stuff in my business or lie on my taxes or steal from my neighbor, it's not as important. You know, as long as I'm following Jesus, as long as I'm singing in the choir, then I'm good. This idea that spiritual is more important than physical And Paul goes full force against that, and he says, that is a false view of the self. You cannot separate the spiritual and the physical, because Jesus has bought all of you, right? That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, well, you're saying that food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God will do away with both of them. And perhaps that's right. When the new creation comes, there's going to be a transformation of the body. Maybe we won't even have a stomach. We don't know, right? But Paul says, wait, 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 but the body is not for sexual immorality. The body is for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. You belong. Your body, your desires, your actions, your thoughts, all of that belongs to Jesus. He bought it. One of the reasons we have such crazy confusion in our culture today about um, sexual identity it's kind of this idea. It's, it's separating the self from the body. Think about it. Think about that phrase, I am a man trapped in a woman's body. That phrase that 50 years ago, it would, uh, it would, not, it would be nonsense, right? Today, it is a phrase that everybody knows what it means. How do we get there? The idea is the self can be separated from the body. And then the self can start to do crazy things and mutilate the body, transform the body, because people think that there is a conflict, that there's a separation. It is the same reason why Christians can tolerate sin in their life. Oh, yes, well, I follow Jesus. I trust in God. I'm forgiven. Yes, I'm addicted to alcohol. Yes, I'm addicted to pornography. Yes, I yell at my wife and throw things. Yes, I cheat and steal. But I I follow Jesus. No, 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 Paul says. Your whole body, your whole self, you are purchased. You belong to God. It's an interesting phrase. The Lord is for the body. Like, there is a sacredness. Like, you belong. All of you. Jesus says, I bought all of it. 
how you behave, where you take your body, what you do with your body, that's all mine. So as, as he's paving the way to, un, to helping us understand sexual sin and sexual brokenness, Paul wants us to see Christian freedom is not limited. Christian freedom is limited to the purpose of holiness and edification. That's, that's the purpose of Christian freedom, right? And second of all, Paul wants us to see, to see here, God saved the whole person, body and soul, and for God's purposes, not for our purposes. Second thing that we want to see is sexual sin is especially destructive. Sexual sin is especially destructive. The point of this is not to heap on extra shame on those who have experienced this or who struggled with sexual sin, right? But the point of this is to not be naive about the power of this particular type of sin. Notice what Paul tells us. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? And then he applies it to the specific problem that people in the church were doing. So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? And the scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. So once, he's, once, once Paul has established this connection between the body and the soul, you are one person. Everything you do affects everything else you do. He applies to this very major part of our life, our sexuality and how sin twists human sexuality. Human sexuality, think about this. So, you know, again, it's one of those topics that the church often doesn't talk about because we blush and we try to avoid it, hush-hush, or in family, right? But it's, that's, a crazy, that's a crazy thing to do because human sexuality is like built by God into us. To be a human being is to be a sexual creature. That is, that is not a flaw. It is not a sinful thing. It is not a thing to be frowned upon. It, God designed us this way. It is a gift, and it is an, a very important part of the human identity. It's an important part of being wholly human is to understand how God created me as a creature with sexual desires and needs. It is one of the most important connections or expressions of deep connection that God gave us. And it's also a gift because as sexual desire points to deep connection between humans, sexual desire also is a hint because we see God says the relationship between a husband and a wife, it's an echo of the relationship between God and his people. God wants us to have a physical experience, even for those who don't have marriage. They experience the desires for marriage, and in those intense desires, you can get an inkling of the depth of how God desires to be connected to us. Human sexuality is very, very important to consider for us, especially in a sexually perverted world today. So sin twists it, right? Sin leads people to take sexuality away from the design that God created and use it for its own purposes, use it in every way that they, they want. They make, the world and sin will take your sexual desire and they will take, make it all about pleasure. It's all about physical pleasure, 
And that's why we see all of the things in our church or in our in the world around us today where you have sexual abuse, you have gender confusion, you have pornography, you have sex trafficking, all these terrible, terrible things that are going on in the world as a result of humans taking this very important part of how God created us and twisting it for their own physical pleasure. The Bible is not anti-sex. We have to understand that, and we want to say that from the pulpit. We want to plant that flag as a church who thinks about these things. We want our kids to hear that as they interact with other kids who will tell them different things, as they interact with the culture that will tell them different things. The world wants to say God's plan for sex is so is, is basically to take away the pleasure and to make it boring and sad. And God says, no, I invented this for glorious purpose. And human beings take it and they twist it. And the result of this is deep brokenness in human beings. Deep brokenness. Scars that's, that, that, that ruin people. Paul wants us to see the danger of sexual sin. Paul wants us to consider this letter was not meant to be read at the pastor's gathering. This letter was meant to be read to the whole church. So notice two things Paul says about why sexual sin is especially terrible. First of all, it's violence against Christ. For a Christian to engage in sexual sin, there is a special way in which it does violence. It does, it's, an, it's, it's an assault on Jesus and what he has done. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Every time you read that verse, you're like, oh, that sounds terrible. Like that just, that's what Paul's trying to say. He's like, what are you doing with your bodies? Do you understand that, that God inhabits your body? That God is with you? And if you are a saved Christian, God dwells in your body. And he says, every time you're doing these things, you're taking the Lord, you're taking his name, you're taking it into these terrible, twisted, perverted sins. Jesus gave himself to, to completely possess us, to own us, right? Think about this concept. Jesus permanently joins himself to us. When you become a Christian, when we define real Christianity, real Christianity is not just a decision. Oh, I made a decision to follow Jesus. Now I'm going to uh, change my life priorities to be more Christian and better, right? Paul is saying something radical. He says, when you become a Christian, when you repent from your sin and you put your trust in Jesus, something, something supernatural happens inside of you, your whole physical being, your body and your soul, something changes. And that change is Jesus joins himself to you permanently. The mysterious concept. We don't want to oversimplify it, but somehow, look what he says. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? He's not talking about when he says Christ's body. He's not, just talking, he's not talking about the church. Later, he's going to talk about, you know, the church is the body of Christ. No, here there's a direct connection. You as the individual Christian, you and Jesus, you're joined. You are, you are connected permanently, inseparably. Jesus has connected himself to you. Has, has, he has become your permanent life source. Later, he asks this rhetorical question. Don't you know your body is the temple 
of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3, 2 through 4, Paul says these words. Back up. Colossians 3, 2 through 4. Notice Paul is making the same point. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Notice what he says. You have died, your life is now hidden in Christ with God. For when Christ appears, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So Paul is saying this mysterious thing. And again, when we hear such mysterious, powerful truths, we have to pause and be like, whoa, like, Think about that. Let that sink in. You are permanently joined to Jesus. His being is part of who you are. That is why you are alive now. That is when we talk about regeneration, being made new, having a new heart. God gives you a new heart because he has connected you as a light, himself to you as a life source permanently. Paul says when Jesus appears, you will appear with him in glory. You're inseparable. To be a Christian is to be joined to the creator. So when we consider, consider sin, when you sin, you're taking the holiness of God and you're dragging it through the mud with you wherever you go, whatever you do, in your thoughts and in your actions. There's a crazy story in the, in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 10, about Aaron's sons. These guys were like high up. They were Aaron's sons, two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. Listen to the story. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan and put fire in it and placed incense on it and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. So, so th this is where God just brought Israel out. They, they set up the whole uh, sanctuary of worship, right? And God told them, this is how you will worship me. After all that started, these two guys, they put on their priestly garments because they, they were consecrated by God to be priests. They had authority. They just they weren't some random guys. They were already Aaron's sons, priests of God. They take these, these pans of fire and they present to the Lord. They come to worship God in their own way, in a way that he did not authorize them. What happened? Verse 2, then fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has spoken. I will, not, I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me. And I will reveal my glory before all the people. And Aaron remained silent. Like, boom. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me. Christians walking in sin should be afraid. Because we are way closer to the Lord than these guys were. Paul says, our body is a temple. What do you do with your body? Sexual sin is violence against Christ. Second of all, sexual sin is violence against the self. Every sin that a person commits outside the body, but the person who is sexually moral, sins against his own body. Here, he's highlighting that not only is it terrible against God, sexual sin is particularly damaging to us, right? So again, the point here is not to shame people who have struggled with sexual sin. The point here is to not be naive because sometimes in the church, we, because we live in such a broken world, we start to downplay the significance of these sins. And oh, everybody struggles with it. But look what Paul says. Paul says, don't be naive. 
And notice he's not just talking about that situation with the prostitution. He's talking about this word sexual immorality. That's a general word, the Greek word porneia. It means anything. It means using your sexuality in a way other than what God designed, which is a man and a woman in marriage, enjoying each other physically and emotionally. Paul says all these forms of sin, they're damaging people. What are some of the biggest ways that this happens today? Let's be specific, right? Pornography, masturbation, lust and emotional fantasy, right? People get engaged in lust because they watch things on TV shows and those ideas get into the, and then those ideas go with them as they travel through the world, right? Objectification of others. This could be physical or emotional, right? These are both sexual sins where you emotionally connect to people and you have fantasies about them or physically connect to them, you have fantasies. Sex outside of marriage, obviously. Sexual violence committed against others, right? These are all the very common, our world is full of this. And as Christians, we live in the world. We cannot be naive that these things don't come against us and that this is not a challenge for us. At, at the core, think about this. What is human sexuality? Sex is a gift that, that it, has, it, it involves your body, deep desire, but it, what it does is it pulls you out of yourself, right? So in marriage, sexuality brings you deep into deep connection with your spouse, right? In a spiritual sense, our sexuality points to the depth of how much God wants us to know him, this depth of knowledge, this depth of intimacy and connection. For single people, their sexual desire is something that is supposed to pull them out of themselves, right? And even how do you seek healthy ways to combat this sin? We'll talk about that a little bit later. But one of the ways is you come out of yourself, you live for others, you love, you have deep community, deep connections, deep relationships, friendships, and you live to love other people, and you battle a, a twisted version of these desires against yourself. This is, a, this is a gift that takes us outside and builds connection. Now, what does sexual sin do? All these different forms of sexual sin, they do the very opposite. They cause a person to turn inside out on themselves. They use these desires to live for themselves, to be locked into themselves, to be locked into their own imagination, to be disconnected from reality. That is why sexual sin is so damaging to people. There's a quote here from C.S. Lewis that I want to read. And again, as C.S. Lewis does, he takes a subject that we wouldn't think about C.S. Lewis writing, about masturbation, and he says why this is so damaging. And I think when you can actually apply this idea to any sexual sin, and again, he speaks here of men only in this, in this quote, but I want, this is not a problem of just men. It's a problem of any person struggling with lust. Different people struggle with lust differently. Some men struggle with this form of lust. Some women struggle with this form of lust and vice versa. So you can apply man and woman in the, in the context as well. But notice how he says this idea. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite, which in its lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren, and turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep in harem of imaginary brides or husbands. In this harem, once admitted against, 
works against ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman or man. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice, no adjustment, and can be endowed with erotic and physiological attractions which no real woman or man can rival. Among these shadowy brides or husbands, this person is always adored, always perfected as a lover. No demand is made on his own selfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he or she increasingly adores himself. That's what Paul wants us to see in this text. It twists your humanity, sexual sin. It twists our humanity. And it is very dangerous. As Christians, we live in a sexually damaged world, right? The, the, one big reason, if you're somebody who's like, wow, this is serious, yes, but I'm not struggling with this right now. Guys, we live in a sexually damaged world. Our world celebrates, unlike in any other age in history, celebrates the perversion of human sexuality. What does that mean? If you're a Christian living in this world and if you wanna share Jesus with the world around you, you have to be prepared to speak to sexually broken people and you have to be prepared to offer them hope and solutions in Jesus and call them to the beauty of his design. You cannot be naive about your mission field. So that brings us to the final point. Glorify God with your body. We don't just stop about talking about how terrible these sins are. We, we stop with, with the power of hope. Glorify God with your body. The body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Very briefly, what is the strategy that Paul is offering? What is the practical strategy? Before you talk about discipline and limiting your apps on your phone or limiting what you watch, there's a deeper strategy. First of all, Paul says, Understand who you are, Christian. Understand who you are. What is your view of yourself? Understand who you are. First of all, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We often don't feel like saints, right? Most of the time, probably, if we're honest. Life is difficult. We have sinful desires we get weak, we get impatient, we struggle with doubt, we fail. But, but, but hear what Paul is saying. He says, what is your self-definition today? Paul says, if you're following Jesus, if you've repented of your sins, if you've trusted Christ for your salvation, Paul says, you are the temple of God, your whole being. And he says, your body, in a very interesting way. He doesn't just say your, your soul, right? Think about this. In some mysterious physical way, God is present in your body. And everywhere you go, God is fully present. This is really important to, to connect to the body again. Because when we talk about this idea of temple, we think Old Testament temple and that's that. No, the, the idea of the temple is present in the entirety of the Bible from the first pages to the last. And the idea of the temple 
is God did not just create a world where he made everything and he is spirit. He's up there in heaven floating around and then his earth is just doing its thing and, you know, the laws of nature and people doing that. No, from the very beginning, the story of the world is God created a physical world and God wanted to be physically present in it. If you read Moses' description of the Garden of Eden and then you read Moses' description of the temple, in the Old Testament. If you read those two together, you're going to see a bunch of parallels between them because that's what Moses is trying to do. He's trying to tell you that the, the, the first temple was the garden. The first temple was the garden. God dwelled with man physically. Remember what it said that they heard the Lord walking in the cool of the day and we're like, what does that mean? God does have feet. We, we don't know what that means. But what it does mean, there is some way God pres was present physically in the world, and he lived in love, communion, joy, delight with Adam and Eve, physically present. As sin has destroyed that, there was the temple. God, was, God didn't just give Moses the law. Think about it. God said, I will be present. My holiness will be present in the middle of the camp. All of your tents will be around my tent. I will have a tent too, and I will be present in there. And if you come in there, I'm impure, you're going to die. I'm there actually. This idea of physical presence. And this idea of physical presence, what happens? The temple doesn't work. People are sinful. So God himself physically becomes a man to live among us. Literally takes on a body. Lives among us. Takes our sinfulness upon himself. Why? So that then he could put himself into us permanently. We are now that temple. God dwells with us permanently, physically, we're not alone in our battle with sin, in our battle with temptation and struggles. Paul says, you are a temple. Everywhere you go, God is inside of you dwelling, sanctifying, working. And not only that, he bought you at a price. For him to own you, for him to make you that temple, he came and he paid the price, right? He paid for your sin. He gave, he spilled his blood. Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. He gave himself so that he could take all of you. When we consider that, you know, like why would God want me? I, I'm just so below average. Why does God want me? Why does God want my body? My body is weird or, you know, not perfect. It hurts or it has weirdnesses, has disease, maybe has desires that are not right, right? We, we're so imperfect. We're so not holy material for temple, right? For the Holy Spirit. God bought you at a price. Why does he want you? Well, if you look at yourself now, you won't know, right? But you have to look forward. You wait till he's done with you. Then you'll know why he wanted you. Because God is working a powerful work of restoration to make you something you could never imagine. His glory transforms us. His glory calls us into a new life. That's what Paul says. The Lord who raised up Jesus is also going to raise us up. And this resurrection power, it's working in you today. Consider who you are. Understand who you are in Christ. Secondly, pursue, pursue holiness with boldness, boldly pursue holiness. What is our relationship to this word holiness, you know? It's like when I look at myself this week, man, it was a hard week. 
I got frustrated with my kids. I felt so unworthy. All these struggles. I'm not perfect. I don't feel holy. When you look at what God has done, and you're like, wow, God has made me his temple, and he calls me to holiness. That word holiness, it takes on a whole new, whole new angle, right? Holiness something becomes something that I want to desire. I want to pursue. Not because I'm great, but because God is in me. He is here. He loves me. He's calling me. He's empowering me to follow him. One of our big mistakes is that we make spiritual growth and fighting sin all about fighting sin. Right? We, we make it about what we're not wanting to do. Oh, how do I avoid this temptation? How do I, okay, I got to get these apps to block off these temptations to look at things I shouldn't look at, or I got to get accountability so that people, so I can put gates and, and, and guardrails on my behavior. And that, that's all necessary to an extent. But, but the deeper thing is, what are you becoming? What, what do you want to become? What is your dream? What is your heart desire? Where are you going with your life? And Paul's, Paul, if you read the New Testament, there's a clear theme, resurrection glory. Resurrection glory. Jesus is working in you, and he will perfect you at the end. But right now, that resurrection glory is making its way through your sinful body right now. There is power to kill sin, to walk in holiness. It is not true that every single person struggles with lust all their life, and they just, it's, that's it, you know? Some of these lies through the Christianese world make it normal to struggle with sin and define ourselves. But Paul says, glorify God with your body. Boldly pursue holiness. True purity is not just about what you're avoiding, it's about what you are becoming. Romans 12.1, Paul says these words, right? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing and perfect, the will of God. Present your body as a living sacrifice. So there's two components here, right? We're always flee sexual immorality, pursue holiness. Flee sexual immorality, pursue holiness. This, this concept, you know, Paul says flee sexual immorality. That means at the same time as we're pursuing holiness, we have to be aware. We must be on guard against sexual sin, always. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how mature you are. The Christian attitude should be flee sexual immorality. Some of the best people in the Bible fell to sexual sin. This, this, this attitude must come with us into daily life, right? Into our entertainment choices. Am I fleeing sexual immorality? This attitude, flee sexual immorality, it comes to my, through my thoughts. Okay, I have thoughts. I have temptations. What do I do with those thoughts? The thought itself is not a sin, but how I respond to a, a lustful thought. Flee sexual immorality. Fight it. Consider yourself to be a saint relationships, emotional attachments, all of these different ways we want to be fleeing sexual morality. And as we're doing that, we're glorifying God in our body. We're pursuing holiness. I think that a big piece of this is when we are battling temptation, we have to understand that we need community. We need people. We need love, right? Correcting our sexual brokenness means directing yourself as a human being to what God designed you. And one of the ways we do that Battle sexual sin by having deep 
trusting relationships with people who pray for you. You can't do it alone. There have to be people in your life. You have to be calling on people to pray. Invite their holiness. Invite their wisdom. Invite their love. Invite their strictness into your life. Secondly, right, he's saying, embrace your new identity in Jesus. Embrace your new identity in Jesus. What am I becoming today? What is my goal? When you think of the future of yourself and you think of the accomplishments you hope to have, right? We all kind of probably have that. That's how we function as human beings. We have a story in our head. When you think of your future self and your future accomplishments, what is that list of accomplishments? Is that list of accomplishments mostly things that will go away with this world? Like when you're dead, will those accomplishments come with you to heaven? Or is your list of accomplishments, is your list of dreams of what you are becoming, is that a list of things that will endure to eternity? So is it just limited to financial goals, business, maybe relationships, maybe some hobbies, whatever? Or is your list about becoming holy, becoming fruitful in the church, becoming an, a, a person who is evangelizing and witnessing about Jesus, becoming a person who builds up other Christians, becoming a person who is killing sin and growing in the joy of holiness, right? What are your dreams? Where are you going? Paul wants to give us confidence. There is a healthy confidence. There's a very unhealthy confidence that kind of masks itself as Christianese. Oh, I'm a worm. I struggle with sin, and I'm nothing, and I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus every day. Yes, but also you are bought and you are indwelt, and you are empowered, and Jesus expects you to use the power that he has given you. He, he gives you the strength to kill sin. It is not your expectation, should not be your expectation to be struggling with a sin all your life. You should expect, not based on your own strength, you should expect based on the Lord and his power that you can walk in strength, power, maturity in the years to come. Is that your goal? Is that your dream? Ephesians 5, 1 to 3. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as an offering. But sexual immorality and impurity and greed should not even be named among you. Should not even be named. Another translation, not even a hint of sexual immorality. Paul is being serious and he's not trying to be religious, right? The point here is not to be religious and to say the standards and then to judge people who are not as pure and holy. This is not a holiness campaign. This is a campaign that says, look, if we love Jesus and we are amazed by the power of the cross, we have been set free from sin and we can walk in purity. We can expect that from ourselves. Do you believe and expect yourself to have victory over sin? Or do you expect yourself to constantly be fighting sins of the same type over and over. What's your expectation? Do you struggle with confidence in Christ? Do you struggle with how God views you? Do you have an internal view of guilt and shame and fear? Or are you learning to embrace how God views you in light of Jesus? Do you view yourself in light of the cross? Glorify God with your body. You carry Christ and everywhere you go, think about this. When we think of oftentimes God working in my life, like, oh, I want God to work in my family. I want, my, I want God to bless my family. 
And we think of it in these abstract ways that God is going to somehow come through the magical, through the windows and through the doors and somehow change my family and my kids and my wife, right? What does it mean for God to fill your home with his grace and power? Well, Paul says, glorify God with your body. It means that your physical presence in the room should be a source of spiritual grace and power. Is that something that we see ourselves, right? As parents, this is the battle. This is the battlefield as parents. Is my bodily presence in the room contributing to the sanctification of my kids? Or is my bodily presence in the room a source of temptation for my children to stumble? Again, we we need help. We need grace. But Jesus is real. How I act, my, my facial expressions, my emotions, my words towards my kids, right? All of that, I'm either, I'm either oozing strength and glory in Christ or I'm overflowing with sin. Glorify God in your body. And finally, anchor yourself to resurrection power. Anchor yourself to resurrection power. God raised us, God raised up the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. This is kind of the anchor for Paul in the whole chapter. God raised us up. God will raise us up as he has raised up the Lord. If you look at Christians throughout the ages, they have been focused on resurrection, defeat of death. Recently, uh, it was a really powerful, interesting moment where um, there's this, what's his name? John Stewart or something. There's a comedian who is very open about his faith. I think it's John Stewart. Um, and he's, very, he's Catholic, but he's very, like, open about his belief in God and Jesus and in the gospel. And there, he was interviewing uh, some sort of movie star, music star. I don't know who she was. And she asked him, hey, you know, how does your comedy and your faith interweave? And he's a very interesting question. Kind of put him on the spot there because she's like, you're very open about your faith. I want to know. You know, how does your comedy and your faith? And, and his basic answer was, because I believe that death has been defeated, because I believe that Jesus won, I can laugh and I can have hope. Even in the bleakest and most difficult moments, I can give hope to people because there's a deeper reason behind that hope. Death is not defeat. Jesus won. And that was a powerful moment on Television, on whatever, television doesn't really exist anymore. It's streaming or whatever. To make the statement, hey, you know what? Biggest thing looming over this world, death. Our bodies will transcend death in Jesus. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. New City Catechism, the one that we do with our church. New City Catechism, what does Christ's resurrection mean for us? Christ's triumph over sin and death by being physically resurrected so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. Resurrection hope, it works today. A couple of questions for us as we're considering communion, as we're considering the table, as we're considering these truths. Where are you today? Are you still chained in the slave market of sin? Have you heard the message that Jesus bought you? Jesus paid for your sin. You don't have to be chained down. You can be free. Have you turned to Christ? There's no special religious ritual. There's a change of heart that needs to happen, right? 
Follow Jesus. Turn to him. He's paid for you. He calls us today to be free. Second of all, what is your relationship to all forms of sexual immorality? Do you take this command very seriously? Flee sexual immorality. Has your life embraced this call? Do you you downplay the significance of this sin? How do you respond when people at work make jokes? How do you respond when inappropriate content is present in entertainment? Do you avoid it completely? Or do you try to get as close to the line as you can without exposing yourself to explicit content? What is the goal? Are you a person, and here's not just about avoiding, are you a person who can point other people to the beauty of sexual wholeness and joy and restoration in God? Are you a person who gives hope to people who are broken? When we consider this idea, God dwells in us. Think about it. Why does God want your body? Some of us have sin and brokenness in us in a variety of ways. Think about this. God dwells in your body. God wanted your body the way it is today with all of its ailments and pains and struggles and abuses and everything. God wants it. God loves it. And God wants you to progressively experience his love and grace. That's hope. That's hope for people who have been abused and struggled, who've sinned. There's powerful hope. Are you a person who shares that hope with others? Are you a person who delights in the holiness, the calling of God to be the temple? Finally, are you captivated by this call to glorify God with your body? Is your life defined by that? Are you dominated by goals that that make you a holier person, a person who is spreading the power of grace in this broken world? Is that your vision of your future? Or are you just dominated by goals that will melt away with this age? One of my favorite groups uh, musically is Citizens. And um, they have this this song. It's called Day by Day. Powerful, beautiful song that, that captures the fight with sin today and the confidence of holiness. They say this. Even when I'm at my worst, I am still of righteous birth. Covered by a saving grace, past, present, future debt erased. My heart is changing day by day. When I run like wildfire, I am still a ransomed child. Bought with blood spilt on a tree, sin and death, they have no hold on me. My will is changing day by day. I am not who I was Now I am who I am, a sinner saved, a stumbling saint. Still I'm never alone. He's alive in my bones. The ghost of God sanctifies. What I once desired for, sorry, one more. What I once desired for is not what I desire more. Heart of stone turned into flesh. Love, joy, peace take over the mess. It's all I'm wanting day by day. As we consider the Lord's table today, let's consider the power of Jesus in us, present, loving, healing day by day. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we thank you that you are not afraid to touch us 
dirty, broken, confused sinners, Lord. You are not ashamed to call us sons and daughters. You are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. You are not ashamed to call us friends. Lord, we thank you for the the power of your grace and your holiness that you did not stay away. You were not repelled by our dirtiness. You came in and you became one of us, Lord. We thank you for the power of the gospel, the freedom of the invitation today, Lord, to follow you, to, to, to be free from sin, to repent, to turn, to run to you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for the power of the resurrection that is working today. We thank you for this mind-blowing truth that you dwell in us. We are your temple. We are not worthy, Lord. And here we are, we gather at your table. We are not worthy to partake of your flesh and your blood. We are not worthy to be made sons and daughters. And yet here we are because you have come, Lord. We just, we thank you for that. We worship you. Teach us, Lord, to fight sexual immorality. Teach us to to be God-glorifying people in everything we do, Lord. Captivate our hearts today. I, I pray, captivate our hearts with a vision to be holy people, gracious people, powerful people in this world of brokenness that we may heal, that we may love, that we may reach out and touch and be a source of your amazing grace to others, Lord. I pray right now that you would, you would be exposing sin, that you would be exposing and challenging our hearts. Lord, help us to, to not hide in the darkness, that you would bring light, that you would call people into repentance, call people into sanctification, community, trust, openness. Lord, make us a holy people. We thank you that we can be your children. We thank you that we can come here. Help us to be a light to the world around us, Lord. The world is scary and messed up. and We can't help them, but, but you can through us. Teach us to be that witness, that salt and light. Amen. The song is, I stand accused by my...